You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Kevin Werbach, who is the professor at the Wharton School and also the author of this book right here. Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust, which came out, I guess, three years ago now, or two and a half years ago or so. And also, you wrote uh, a while back, this one with Dan Hunter, For the Win, Power of Gamification, Game Thinking, etc. So lots of fascinating subject. And as a law professor in a business school, I think you have a unique position and a unique perspective. I think where I want to start is I want to look at these two quotes that you reference in the book, one by Satoshi Nakamoto in the 2008 white paper, where he says they have invented a system for electronic transmission of value without trust. But Nick Szabo, who is another kind of leading thinker in this field and sort of coined the term smart contracts, he says there's no such thing as a fully trustless institution or technology. And I think what you're pointing out is that this word trust is something that is not very well understood. Uh, And I think a lawyer is probably in a good position to talk about it. So how do you reconcile those quotes? And what do we mean when we talk about trust? Trust is one of those concepts that everyone thinks that they understand. They use the term a lot, but they never really stop to ponder what exactly it means. And just to be clear, with all due respect, I think Satoshi Nakamoto was wrong. He or she or they did an incredibly impressive thing in creating Bitcoin and bringing together a variety of different techniques to create the foundations of this amazing blockchain economy that we're building. But the idea that we can get rid of trust entirely is is not only wrong, it's really dangerous and misleading. Because we want trust. We want transactions to be trusted. We want people to feel confidence that what they're doing is not going to lead to them being attacked or their money being stolen or someone else having too much power. Trust, as I talk about in the book, basically boils down to confident vulnerability. You are vulnerable, right? If I hold a gun to your head, that I'm not trusting you that you're going to do what I say. In fact, it's because I don't trust you that I feel like I need the gun. Trust is with some level of uncertainty, some vulnerability I may get hurt, and yet I'm still willing to go forward. So trust is really at the heart of a functional society. It's very much at the heart of the financial system. Money itself is basically just concentrated trust. That's ultimately what makes money worth something. And so studying what it takes to create cryptocurrencies that function as money or more broadly cryptocurrency networks and blockchain systems and tokens that represent value in lots of ways, not just for financial transactions. Studying that is actually a tremendously valuable window into the nature of trust. Now, before Larry Lessig wrote his book with Code and Law, I've been teaching law and economics for a bunch of decades, and we would talk about kind of legal contracts versus self-enforcing contracts or using the legal system versus using some kind of non-legal mechanism for the enforcement of agreements. And so we've always thought in, in terms of these dichotomies, but I think you offer a little bit of a richer perspective on different ways that we can put ourselves into this position of confident uh, vulnerability. You talk about peer-to-peer systems of trust trust versus the kind of Leviathan view of trust versus kind of a centralized form of trust. Could you elaborate on those structures? How do those structures fit in with the other frameworks that we have for understanding cooperation? Sure. So we start with this notion that there needs to be some reason that you're confident despite the vulnerability. All right. Why would you trust someone or something or some process? One way you would trust is that if you have a relationship, I might trust my family. I might trust my close friends. If I'm in a small village hundreds of years ago, I might trust everyone that I interact with because it's all a web of personal, longstanding relationships. So that's peer-to-peer trust. And that still exists today. It's really powerful. We actually see it in some of the law and economics work, including some of the sophisticated Nobel Prize winning work on contract theory and things like relational contracts comes down to the fact that you may have two big companies, but you can't just look at the formal terms of the contracts that they write. The relationship even then can mean something. So that trust still exists, but it's limited. It's peer-to-peer. It's not transitive. So if I trust you, you may have a friend or a business partner that I don't trust at all, and I shouldn't trust at all. And in a large industrial society, what we need is ways to have trust that goes beyond peer-to-peer. So that's the first one. 
The second one is what I call Leviathan. It's hearkening back to the, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. But that basically is the traditional kind of legal trust with government as a backstop. So Hobbes' point was, why would anyone sign a contract when basically I could sign a contract and then the other party would just say, OK, I'm going to breach the contract. If it's in my interest, I'll just steal your money. And then I have no choice, typically, other than to have to use force or violence. That's the only way I can get them to comply. And Hobbes said, no, the alternative was society, civilization. We agree to give up some of our freedom. In Hobbes' terms, we give the state, the government, a monopoly on the violence. The state can enforce the law all the way up to federal marshals in the United States coming in and hauling you away to jail. It has that power. And the point of that power is not to empower the state. The point of that power is to empower private actors. That's why I'm going to agree to a contract with you, because if you breach the contract, I'm confident I can sue you in court. And so I don't need to hire the goons with the baseball bats to break your knees. We actually will trust each other and enter into a relationship, hoping and most of the time we don't ever have to go through the legal system. The problem, though, is the legal system's got to work and there's all kinds of ways it's inefficient, it's biased, it's expensive, it's slow, it's problematic, it only works in one jurisdiction and so forth. So we need something more than the legal system. The third kind of trust I call intermediary trust, and that's the trust in networks. Why does everyone give all their data to Facebook? It's because Facebook facilitates this amazingly vast and powerful social network. And we don't have to trust all 2 billion people who are on that network. We just have Facebook as the intermediary. And today we all appreciate that even though that's all really powerful and important, that intermediary trust is a, a significant thing. It gives that intermediary a tremendous amount of authority and control and power that it can and will often exploit to our detriment. So those are the traditional forms of trust. They're all important, but all of them have this limitation that there's some dependency on some central actor. And the basic insight of the book, or at least one of them, is that blockchain is a fourth kind of trust. It is a new architecture of trust, not the absence of trust. But it's a different kind of trust that in some way lets you trust in the whole, trust in the outcome, without having to trust any specific actor. I don't have to trust you that I give you my money and you're not going to run away with it. So I don't have to trust, for example, a miner that is verifying my transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. I can still trust the blockchain as a whole. And before we jump into that, just thinking about these different types of trust, I mean, are they, I think we often think of them as substitutes, but aren't they also complements in the sense that there's been a lot of empirical work to see how much people trust in different societies. And it seems there's more peer-to-peer -peer trust in a society where you have a strong, solid kind of legal backstop, where you have a good, solid rule of law. And when we think about a centralized trust like Facebook or Bank of America, one of the reasons why we trust those entities is because they're not judgment-proof, right? We know that they have a big pile of honey somewhere that we can go after in the event that they violate our trust. So to what extent are the different systems of trust substitutes and to what extent are they, they complements? And I guess this will lead us into the question about, about this new architecture of trust. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very important insight. They're not necessarily all substitutes. As you say, how much they, one or the other, is relevant depends a lot on context. And context might be, is this a community that knows each other and works together? Or are we talking about a large diversified corporation? Are, are we talking about in a country like the United States or a country like India or a country like China? Lots of different contexts that will make one or the other of the trust architectures, the one that's most salient. But you're absolutely right. It's not that we have to choose one or the other. That's really a critical point with blockchain. To get back to the, the first question that you asked, someone like Nick Zabo says we can't make trust go away, but, but Zabo is a libertarian, and Zabo's view is the trust based on government, the, the Leviathan trust I talked about, that's bad because we don't want to give up power to government. What's good about blockchain-type systems is it's a different kind of trust. You're trusting in the technology, the code, the math, the cryptography. And then that's an alternative. He really sees them as substitutes. And I push back a lot on that view as well. And in fact, one of the other big points of the book is that regulation, governance, law, these are not opposed to the kind of cryptographic decentralized trust that blockchain enables. In fact, having good systems of law regulation and governance is necessary to realize the full potential of the technology. 
Yeah. So you reference this kind of libertarian streak, the blockchain movement. I remember when I taught my blockchain course for the first time, there was definitely a very strong distrusting of authority streak running through it. And I think the motivation behind the formation, the creation of the blockchain protocol was probably a somewhat a cypherpunk, uh, libertarian, et, et cetera. And so that I think We've come a long way since then. But if that, if really distrust of central authority is the motivator, then one would suspect that the places where you would be most likely to see these architectures thrive would be those places where there has been a breakdown of trust. And you talk a bit in the book about the breakdown of trust more or less all around the world. But it seems like those areas where we see the most corruption or the most, the weakest institutions for the enforcement of contract, they don't seem to be the places where, where we see the strongest emergence of this technology. Maybe with Silk Road and there's a maybe a world where there's some distrust, but we seem to see this technology emerging in places where we already have some pretty solid institutions of trust. How do we explain that? Yeah, so there's a couple points there. The first one is important that while it's certainly true that many people at the beginning and now who are influential and associated with cryptocurrencies and blockchain have this radical distrust of governments and authority. Well, that's certainly true. Coinbase is now the, the most valuable crypto company in the world. It's a hundred billion dollar valuation at the IPO. Coinbase is centralized. If you use Coinbase, you give them your keys, you give them control of your digital assets. And I think the number that I use in the book at, at the time I saw a data point, 80% of all cryptocurrencies are held in these centralized exchanges where people literally give someone else control. Why? Because it's much easier and more effective that way. And you yourself as an individual don't have the full burden of securing your digital assets and having no recourse if you lose the private key. So that entirely makes sense. But if you look in practice at what most people who are in this world do, they don't have this kind of ideological belief that centralization is always bad just because it's bad. So that's the first point. The second one, I don't think I entirely agree with your statement that we don't see adoption of blockchain in areas that have a significant breakdown of trust. Those are societies where there are huge problems. And so we're typically not going to see massive investment and large companies being built just because of all the different societal problems in general. And often the issue is ultimately not the one that the digital systems, the blockchain system solve. So early on, a lot of people thought, okay, killer use case for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will be places like Africa, where there's not trust in the banks, there's not trust in governments. And the trouble was, you can't just abstract out the physical world. You can't just say to people, you've got your phone and poof, you've got these cryptocurrencies, and now you can spend them. What are you going to spend them on? Turns out you've got to take them out into a local currency and get some merchant or bank there to be willing to deal with you. And that is the entity that you may not want to deal with because you don't trust them. Or for example, you can use a blockchain to register your ownership, your title in some land. But at some point, you still got to go to a local real estate office, a local land office and get them to record it in the system of record. It's not that the technology doesn't have value in those contexts. It's that it's not just going to magically solve all the problems. But that being said, we're seeing some really interesting examples. So places like Venezuela and Argentina that have hyperinflation and breakdown of governmental oversight of the economy are seeing non-trivial adoption of companies paying people in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because they're somewhat immune from that governmental process. Now, those countries have pushed back and put very severe limits to try to prevent that from happening, but companies are starting to do that. One of the places that the greatest adoption of blockchain is happening is China, which in many ways is because of the breakdown in trust. And it's not just bottom up of individuals and companies trying to get around the constraints of the state, it's the state itself. It's the Chinese Communist Party realizes that there's a breakdown in trust and that gets in the way of the kind of economic growth and development it wants to see. So it's actually pushing blockchain on Chinese companies, Chinese state-owned enterprises, Chinese governmental actors to use this to be able to convince people that it's not corrupt. So I think it's a more complicated story than that. Going back to what we talked about before, you need these different kinds of trust interacting to really get the fullest adoption. 
Yeah. So before I think we get into that discussion of how decentralized it really is in practice, at least when we go back to the vision or to, to the theory, what would you say really is the thing that makes it new, that makes it into an entirely different category of trust architecture? Because I think a skeptic might say, we've had self-enforcing contract mechanisms in place, right? We've used technology as a tool for maybe not this type of technology, but we've used other types of technology to try and at least increase the likelihood of of self-enforcing agreements. What is really new about the Bitcoin protocol that warrants the introduction of an entire new classification of trust architecture? At some level, nothing is new. So every piece of the Bitcoin white paper was a concept that had either been already deployed or at least had been described in academic work. And in almost every case, Satoshi cites back to that. Hadn't been all combined in the same way. Uh, no one had introduced exactly this mechanism, but it, it drew on decades of computer science research, digital money technology, and so forth. So at some level, it's asking, was there anything new about the internet in 1994? Packet switching technology, ARPANET, went back to 1969 and other things before that. At some level, no, but technologies get to this point where they're sufficiently mature and then their time comes. So the fact that we were coming out of the global financial crisis, you had, first of all, the internet that could spread this technology and these ideas around the world. People could collaborate and build these systems in this globally decentralized way they couldn't have done 10 or 20 years before. And there was a willingness and a desire to push back on these centralized systems that had been breaking down. So all of that was really instrumental in the success of it. That being said, though, I, I would say there is something fundamental fundamentally new in trying to create a system where as much as possible, there is no central dependency. Now, it's not perfect. It, you know, that's the, the point that I've already made. It, it's not that there is nothing you have to trust other than the math for a blockchain system to be effective. That's really the point. There's all these points of centralization and dependency that creep back in. But we really never had something at scale before that works this well without having to have the explicit kind of central reliance. Bitcoin is now an over a trillion dollar asset. And so that means everyone around the world that is trying to get access to that is going to try to hack it and to break it. And no one has, which is an utterly extraordinary thing. So it's partly just the fact that it works. And it's partly the fact that there, again, there's been this takeoff and adoption. We can certainly find antecedents that, that structurally look similar. And I talk about some in the book, but it's just the fact that the combination of the particular set of technical design choices and the particular societal and technological context made it appropriate that this one got that takeoff and then it becomes something real in the world that I think deserves that status of a new trust architecture. I think the idea behind these, these permissionless chains is that, that it is decentralized and can't be captured by any centralized power. But you mentioned in practice that indeed there's quite a bit of trust and, and there may even be quite a bit of centralization. I think at the level of the miners, the kind of economies of scale that exist in mining was probably something that wasn't really imagined at the inception. Is that a concern? The fact that we trust that there will be almost an infinite supply of new entrants into mining? Or are we concerned that the Sybil attack is not what we're concerned with, but rather the fact that there might be two or three mining pools in China subject to the control of the Chinese government that could potentially just start siphoning off value uh, for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Those are real concerns. My view of all of this is blockchain is a family of technologies. And that's a contentious viewpoint. There are those who say, no, it's only Bitcoin. Bitcoin was this unicorn and anything that steps away from Bitcoin to be somewhat more centralized in some way or requires permission to access the network or anything, that just doesn't count. And, uh, and even Bitcoin is not far enough, but that's it. Uh, and I think that's wrong because the reality is any technological system involves trade-offs. And again, the question here is not what can we draw on a whiteboard that meets certain abstract criteria? Because we, we could have created something you know, that was decentralized money a long time ago on a piece of paper. The point is what actually works in practice. And that, that's, again, that's what is so extraordinary about Bitcoin that it did. But it has real limitations because of those trade-offs and, and because of the design choices that were made. Some of them are explicit. So Bitcoin is designed to be so decentralized 
that it basically can't evolve other than some very limited kinds of changes. The Bitcoin network cannot be designed to scale dramatically. Now, there's efforts to create these level two, layer two networks on top of it and so forth, but it can't keep up with the demand, basically. And that's intentional that in order to upgrade the Bitcoin network, there has to be basically a majority of miners uh, who agree to a fork to, to run updated software. And that's almost impossible for anything significant. That's a choice. Other things were not choices. They were just accidents. So you're absolutely right. In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto was talking about people mining on their laptops. And then very quickly, people started using GPUs and using special purpose chips and so forth and mining rigs. And so the economics of mining today are radically different from what they were in the early years of Bitcoin. And that that makes a big difference. So absolutely. And, that, and that's again, that's not something that was a an explicit choice. That's just something that happened. I think we need to step back and as opposed to just starting with, OK, what are the limitations? Say, no, what are the set of goals for this particular challenge? And there's not going to be one cryptocurrency system or one blockchain to rule them all that will be perfect for everything. Will there be five? Will there be 5,000? Will there be five? I don't know exactly what the number is. It won't be infinite because there is value in centralization and aggregation. But the question is, what is the objective? And if the objective is to create money outside of the existing financial system, then that's one objective. If the objective is to create a store of value to replace gold, which is not exactly the same thing, that's one thing. If the, the goal is to create the foundations for a world computer that will replace the existing computing infrastructure of the internet with something decentralized, that's a different objective. And, and on and on and on. You know, what we need to do is actually dig deeper into these questions. So yes, it's a real problem that so much of the mining is concentrated in places like China. Yes, it's a real problem that mining uses so much energy and is becoming a real serious concern in terms of climate change. But again, none of those things are, and therefore it's an inherent limitation of blockchain and cryptocurrency, or and therefore it can't be solved. It's just those are the issues that we need to dig into and then start asking, okay, what's the response? And then what do we have to give up? Because nothing comes for free. That's the important point. Satoshi didn't create a perpetual motion machine. He just created something that seemingly magically worked in the real world at scale. But we've got to understand what he gave up in order to do that. So I think a more interesting issue that you raise and discuss quite a bit is about governance and maybe the distinction between kind of rule enforcement and rule creation. And, the, you know, the story of the DAO. I mean, the, the DAO story in Ethereum, I think, is just is so emblematic of this. And it gives you an opportunity to talk a lot about governance. But I think it's also something that is not really well understood by participants in this community, that there isn't somehow, there has to be some process by which the rules of the system evolve over time. And that is ultimately going to be held by someone. And it could be a centralized group. It could be something a little more decentralized. And even if it's democratic, it still is going to have to delegate this authority to someone. Could you talk a bit about that story and the interesting issues that it raises for governance? Yeah. So the DAO, it stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which is a general class of basically creating corporate-like structures on the basis of smart contracts on blockchains. The DAO tried to be the first one implementing this concept. It was a decentralized crowdfunding system launched in 2016 on Ethereum. And so the idea was you would contribute Ether and you'd get these DAO tokens and they would give you voting rights. And then projects would propose projects for funding that would be things related to the Ethereum ecosystem. And people with the tokens would vote and money in the form of Ether and tokens would go to the projects that won. And then when those projects were successful, they would pay back the token holders and so forth. That was the idea. Now, just as a legal matter, it sounds an awful lot like a partnership right there, right? Yeah. So the SEC at the end of the day said it was an unincorporated association, which, you know, which in the law it sort of defaults to a partnership. The question is, who were the partners? Because there were a group of developers that wrote the code. Most of them were affiliated with or friends with the Ethereum Foundation, which was the foundation around Ethereum. Several of them were also part of a company called Slocket, which, by the way, was a company that wanted to raise funds for its IoT system using the DAO. So that was another dimension. And then there were curators who, you know, again, were some of the same people who had certain special rights to access functions in the DAO. And so um, 
Had there been a lawsuit, and, and I'm sure there would have been if the story came out differently, then courts would have had to sort out who is legally responsible. Courts would simply not throw up their hands and say, oh, it's blockchain. No one gets their money back. But just to fill in the story, so what happened was they launched this decentralized crowdfunding system. It took off beyond the wildest dreams of those who started it, partly because it was 2016. Ethereum had launched, but there wasn't really anything you could do with Ether except this. People thought it was cool. So very quickly, a uh, $150 million worth of Ether was locked into this DAO. And this was something that had been written really quickly uh, without a lot of oversight. It quickly became clear that there were various flaws in the code. And then someone exploited one of these to basically siphon off money to their own, basically what's called a child DAO. And fortunately, there was a delay function that they couldn't take the money out of the system entirely for 30 days. But there was $40 million. And, and at some point, it probably could have been the whole 150 that was going to literally be stolen. This was a thief. Very quickly, it clearly had exploited a flaw in the code. It's called a reentrancy attack. It's a fairly elementary programming error that they made. And so this became clear. And then the community had to decide what to do. And the problem is it's a smart contract. It's immutable. There was no mechanism in the DAO to say, shut that person off, reverse that transaction. That's a thief because no one was in control. And so what happened? The community had to decide, do we implement a hard fork of the whole Ethereum network to roll back the transaction, which which would break the DAO, break immutability, and literally break all of Ethereum. It would fork the entire Ethereum network. Do we do that? Because that's the only way to get people's money back. And there was a debate. And some people said, no, immutability is immutability. You sign up for this. There's a flaw. Tough. Everyone should lose their money. And then in the future, there will be better systems. The majority said, no, we want our money back. This is theft. There's no good reason for theft. And if you have a system that's easily vulnerable to theft, it's not going to be trusted. No one's going to use this system. So they did the hard fork. As a result of that, essentially all the money got returned. And so there was no lawsuit. The Securities and Exchange Commission also later came in after the fact, after this thing was closed down and said, oh, you know what, by the way, this was an illegal set of investment contracts. It was a security under the law and should have been regulated on top of everything else. But we never got to that point. So it was a fascinating story because despite all of the ideology, oh, this is decentralized and no one's in control and so forth, when push came to shove, in order for systems to be trusted, people want governance. They want some mechanism to have redress when things go wrong. And and so certainly it can be done in a more decentralized way. It can be done in a way that doesn't always require a fallback to the courts. But we, we can't just pretend that these questions go away just because we have a blockchain. Even in your discussion, right, you use the word theft and implying that there was no wet contract. So if there's no wet contract, how can that be theft? Like, why didn't these people sue? The people who, the thieves, when the hard fork happened, why didn't they sue and say, hey, we just did what the code allowed us to do. They didn't violate any contract or any property law or anything. So wh why should they be punished for just doing what they do? So first of all, so there, there was wet code. There was a terms of service on the Dow okay. website, but it literally said this terms of service has no meaning meaning just look at the smart contract, which was an attempt to be cute, but it became a problem. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing is someone had exactly your idea, almost certainly not the attacker, the thief, but someone posted something on an anonymous website when all this was going on saying, hi there, I'm the attacker. I'm the one who took the money and I'm going to sue you if you do this hard fork because all I did was what the code allowed. My understanding was the point of this thing, the DAO, was to encourage people to create child DAOs, to encourage people to experiment with ways to take money out of this thing. And that's what I did. And you're the thief. You, the community that wants to take my money away, I'm going to sue you. Now, again, this was almost certainly a joke, but it was a very clever joke because it made exactly that point. And the issue is, well, all right, so how does one decide if we can postulate this is ambiguous? You have a procedure. You have a trusted system. And that trusted system does not need to be a governmental process only. But that is one thing that court systems are good for, that they have these mechanisms and history and procedure and precedent and appeal structure and all of that. So that if you go into a court and I say, Your Honor, I'm not a thief, it's my money. And you say, he's a thief. The court looks at the facts, it looks at precedent and has a way of deciding. And then the court makes a decision. And if you think the court's wrong, you can appeal. It's not perfect at all, but it kind of sort of works. There, There is a reason why court systems are you know, the foundation for every major legal system around the world. And they've basically outcompeted other alternatives like trial by combat. They work most of the time. And again, it's not that they're perfect. It's not that we can't scale back the role of the court system.
But if you look at what the more sophisticated blockchain-based systems are doing, and this has only increased in the time since the book came out, they are building in new governance mechanisms that try to recreate some of the best features of court systems in a decentralized way. Now, again, they're still not going to be perfect. I, I still think we need law as a backstop ultimately, but they are recognizing that there's a value that those governance mechanisms promote. And the issue is not how to abandon them, but how to get as much of the benefit of them as possible in a decentralized way. Yeah. So let's talk about smart contracts because it's easy to get very excited about the possibility of, of smart contracts. And I think probably at least it's very easy to get excited about the possibility of machine readable contracts and modular contracts. And then it's also easy to get excited about this idea of, of smart contracts. There's so many different places where you could replace dumb contracts with smart contracts, derivatives and SPVs, real estate transactions and so forth. But I think where a lot of people misunderstand smart contracts, they think that it can exist completely independent of the legal backstop. I have to remind people, okay, there's, there's mistake and there's uh, unconscionability and there, you know, there's all these things which you can't just assume away. They're going to rear their, their ugly head and people are going to sue you, but the lawsuits are going to be different. So you mentioned that instead of suing for breach, you're going to sue for restitution, maybe in the event of a smart contract execution. Could you talk about how smart contracts can insert themselves into the, the legal system and grease the wheels? I think at one point you said that trust is all about the reduction of transaction costs. And so a new technology of trust is really a transaction cost reducing technology. So how can these smart contracts help? I went to law school and the first day of law school, I had contracts with the late great Phil Arita at Harvard, who was, if anyone saw the old series, The Paper Chase, the famous Professor Kingsfield was, a, was an amalgam of Phil Arita and another professor named Arthur Miller at Harvard. So he was quite brilliant and quite terrifying and an extraordinarily good teacher. And we started contract law with remedies. What do you do in terms of how do you pay for damages in contract? Wait, wait, why start with remedies? Contract law should start with what's a contract? How do you write a contract? How do you create a contract? It starts at what seems like the end. That's traditionally where you start in law school. Why? Because contract law is not about what you do when things go right. Okay. We enter into a contract. It's performed. We have a great relationship. You don't hire a lawyer. Okay. You hire a lawyer when something goes wrong. And the point of the lawsuit is then what do you do if someone breaches a contract? Contract law is about creating a remedy for a situation where things break down and then everything flows from there. So it's backward looking, it's retrospective. The issue with a smart contract is that it goes the opposite way. The smart contract is what you quote in at the beginning. The part at the end is just the code executes, period, full stop. It's not, and then if there's a breach, we go and fight with each other and go to a court. No, none of that exists. It's just the code executes. So all of the responsibility is up front. You've got to write into the contract everything that will ensure you are comfortable about the outcomes. The problem with that is that it would require what economists call complete contracts, a contract that perfectly anticipates every future state of the world. Another word for complete contracts is impossible contracts, <laughs> because for anything that's of any interesting level of sophistication, humans have what's called bounded rationality. We can't anticipate every situation. And even sometimes if we can anticipate it, we can't write it down in machine understandable code that explains exactly what happens in every scenario. So there are these limits with smart contracts. And the issue is a smart contract can be very efficient. As you talked about, they build upon other kinds of automated and machine-based contracts. The real difference is the smart contract is fully executing and enforcing the agreement. In its own world, it's not, this is what goes through. And then you look back to your, is the master agreement, if this is a derivatives contract, to deal with what terms mean or to deal with what happens. No, none of that exists in the realm of the smart contract. It just executes. The problem is a situation like the Dow, where it just executes and everyone says, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not what we intended. That's not what we want. And if that's what we're going to get, we're going to just take our marbles and go home. It's not going to be trusted. So if the result of the smart contract process is to make people less willing to transact, less trusting, that's not a good result. The whole point of contracts in general and the whole point of automated systems is to increase that efficiency, to reduce that friction in contracting, to let people more easily get what they want and organizations get what they want. 
One set of mechanisms that now are getting very widely implemented are you know, essentially putting in at the beginning anticipation of an arbitration system. So you can use a, a multi-sig agreement, one that, say, in the simplest version requires two of three private keys to execute and say, all right, we got two parties. We each got one key and we'll give a third key to an arbitrator. And if there's a dispute, it takes two keys. And so what that means is if we agree, the two parties, then that's fine. We just put our keys. If we disagree, the arbitrator's key controls. And it could be four of seven or 11 of 19 or whatever. Any kind of mechanism could be put into place. It could be digital online. What The arbitrator could be a, a, an AI system, whatever. But we can build that into the smart contract itself. That's a governance, a law-like system, but built into the smart contract. The other thing that is increasingly being done is what's now usually being called a Ricardian contract. And the idea is you have two contracts. You've got the smart contract, the digital agreement, and then you've got the human-written wet code, the legal agreement. And they basically point to each other. The legal contract says, go look at this smart contract at this address on the blockchain that for whatever is not defined in this legal agreement, that will control. And the smart contract says, go look at this legal contract. Here is a hash of that legal contract. So you can be sure cryptographically, that's the exact legal contract we intended. Go look at that if you need to go into court. And so this basically creates a hybrid where if there is a need for a fallback to the legal system, the parties said, yes, this is what we want to do. And that lets you deal with, for example, what if you're in different jurisdictions or things like that, but you don't have to fall back to the legal system and it doesn't happen in this chaotic way that we saw in the Dow case. But you could still infer the intent of the parties and other sorts of things from a smart contract. Just It would just mean that you'd, maybe the judge might require a translator <laughs> or somebody to articulate what's going on. Yeah. So one thing about smart contracts is it's a broad category. So there is nothing that prevents a smart contract from being considered a legal contract, right? The law doesn't worry about formalities and technology. A contract is a meeting of the minds of the parties and so forth, and that can be digital. However, you can code something as a smart contract, for example, that has no counterparty, where the contract just says, this happens to my Bitcoin or my Ether. That's not a legal contract because you can't have a, a legal contract with the world. So there are things that are smart contracts that sort of don't fit into the legal system. But most of the ones that we're talking about that have mutual obligations do. But yeah, absolutely. There is any time there is a dispute going to be a need to deal with some of these imprecise decisions. Intent is one of the imprecise decisions. And really the challenge is how much can we scale that back? goes back to the point that you quoted about transaction costs. It's not that the legal system works well because we use it so much. The legal system works well in countries like the United States because most of the time companies don't go to court because it's just not efficient. It's costly and it's uncertain and so forth. So yeah, we want to look to how do we scale back or how do we use technology? So there are some situations where you can actually get a better result using the wisdom of the crowd, using a prediction market and say, all right, we're going to have you have skin in the game. You're going to have a you know value based on your answers. If you get it right with the collective, we're going to use that to make decisions in a totally decentralized digital way. Now, I'm not saying that is the answer that's always going to replace court systems, but that's a, a real thing that people are building on blockchain systems. And we're really early in this. So I'm very much open that there is significantly greater scope for these more decentralized systems to be used at scale in real world, serious business contexts. Absolutely. But we're just not quite there yet. You talk about how oracles might work in the smart contract context, and you talk about computational courts. You know, when I'm trying to explain oracles to some of my students, I analogize it to like LIBOR. The funny thing is that LIBOR was hacked, right? Yep. And and yet no one was able to unravel these contracts. No one was able to go back and say, you know what? That was not an accurate depiction of what the um, banks charged their best customers. I want to get a refund on my mortgage, right? Like once the, the oracle is demonstrated to be erroneous, it doesn't really mean that anybody has any recourse. Would, would that be different in, the, yeah. in this context? Yeah, except that regulators come in and assess fines and so forth. But yeah, the LIBOR one was a large-scale collective manipulation. So oracles have been hacked too. There have been you know, at least tens, probably hundreds of millions of dollars at this point that have been lost, mostly in these DeFi, decentralized finance protocols, where people have exploited the oracle because they, you need an oracle to figure out what the price of something is. And these are automated systems that will say, okay, go look at the reference point price of this stable coin and use that to assess what something's worth. And 
And so if you can basically generate a lot of uh, action on one side of that stablecoin, you can temporarily displace it and then you know, use that to profit by basically extracting money from the, the related DeFi system. This has been done numerous times already. It's a serious problem. So in, that, in those cases, there's no automatic recourse. There are various ways that some of those projects have been able to get money back and identify who's causing the problems, but they're really imperfect. And so the Oracle companies are, are hard at work on making their systems harder to exploit, making them more decentralized. Again, it's another one of these areas where necessity is the mother of invention. There's innovation improving the quality of the Oracle systems. And again, it comes back to trust. If you're going to put uh, large sums of money into a DeFi lending system where a point of vulnerability is the price Oracle, you're not going to do that until you have a sufficient confidence level. And again, it's not just going to be my confidence is that the cryptography is sound. It's really much more than that. So yeah, absolutely. This is a problem. And my contention in general in the book is that we're not going to have really widespread adoption, what I think is the potential and what I think would be tremendously beneficial in, in lots of ways to society. The full adoption of these cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems until there is enough of a confidence level of these kinds of backstops. The areas where we're seeing most of the adoption are the ones where that's not necessary. Either they're the permission enterprise systems that are more centralized, or at least limit who can get on the network, or there are things like cryptocurrency trading. Again, you go to centralized regulated actor Coinbase that has the US government's you know, regulation and legal system standing behind it and use it to trade your Bitcoin with someone else who's in that kind of environment, then you have to worry about Coinbase being hacked. But that's similar to worrying about other kinds of exchanges being hacked. You don't have this fundamental problem that the entire system could be exploited and you'd have no recourse. And oh, by the way, you've got a contractual relationship with Coinbase that's overseen by regulators and so forth. And so that's partly why those are the segments of crypto that have really taken off. And I'm eager to see the potential of these other mechanisms both for business opportunities, but also they are more decentralized. They are more free. They are more democratic in ways that I think are important. But we can't get lulled into our love for those opportunities to think that we can take a shortcut around these really hard problems. Yeah. So you introduced this concept of the information fiduciary, which I found very intriguing. Could you just uh, elaborate on what you meant by that and where you see sure. that happening? Yeah. So it's, it's not a concept that I came up with, but I, I bring it into this context. So you know, fiduciary is a legal concept for an actor that's a, a special repository of trust. So, for example, if you're a trustee of a trust, you're an executor of an estate, a you know, lawyer is a fiduciary for funds and so forth, where there's a strong dependency. There are legal categories like the ones I described that are definitively fiduciaries, but then there's scope to increase it. Uh, board of directors are fiduciaries for the company, for example. And if you're a fiduciary, you have special obligations. You have to take into account the interest of the one that you're responsible for ahead of your own interest. Normally, it's a contractual relationship. This is something where you have heightened duties across the board under the law. So a number of scholars, the, the most famous were Jack Balkin at Yale and Jonathan Zittrain at Harvard, have made the claim that big digital platforms like Facebook and Google are now so central to the information ecosystem. And we have so much dependency on them for our data without really any choice to say no. We can't just say I'm going to live my life and never touch them in the world today. Because of that, they should be treated as fiduciaries. They should have obligations, for example, not just to say, sure, if I can make money on your data, I just need to have a contract where you say you agree to that use. No, they have to show that their use of your data is in your interest. They use your data to give you better service, okay, but not if they use data for them to make more money that's against your interest. So that's the concept of information fiduciaries. And it's a contentious concept. It's being proposed in various ways in various legal proposals but it's in the debate for information platforms. And so I, I make the argument that we might think about something similar for critical actors in the blockchain ecosystem. Because again, there are these parties like developers, like miners and so forth, like certain governance actors and certain blockchain systems who have this special role that there actually is dependency on them. And again, that's what came up in the DAO context. And so maybe we can use this legal construct as a way of identifying who those are in, in some cases and then applying heightened legal duties to them, but not to everyone. Though The point of this is then that does not mean therefore that anyone who writes a line of code that goes into the repository for a blockchain system is automatically a fiduciary. 
It's really about separating out who deserves to have that classification. So again, you know, I think that's an area worth exploring, but we're really just at the beginning of working it out. So I have to ask you about Billy's paradox and Vlad's conundrum. Right? So these are two two things that you reference in the book, and I don't know whether they're going to enter into common parlance, but but maybe you could just I think they touch on the, some of the major points that you make in the book. So if you just want to remind us of those, yeah. Two. So Billy is Billy Leonverta. He's an economic sociologist at, at Oxford in the UK. He's a blockchain skeptic. Yeah, but he's very technically sophisticated. And the claim that I pick up from him was he basically looks at something like the Dow situation. I think that was actually the example that he originally used. And he says, hey, wait a minute, we can see what's going on here. What's going on here is there were central actors who had power and they decided we need to have a hard fork and give everyone's money back. And that's fine. Like they, okay, they made the right call, but that's governance. That's central control. That's nothing new. And so his claim is basically the paradox is if we have a true decentralized blockchain, what people are talking about, then we can't have governance. And if we have governance, then we can't have decentralization. Vlad is the one of the key developers of Ethereum. And Vlad is basically talking about law. And he's basically pointing out that there's this argument that if you have a system that is entirely based on the smart contract, that controls where the money goes. And it's totally decentralized. It's anonymous. We don't know who people are. It's not tied to any jurisdiction. Then there is no way to do legal enforcement. And that means there's no way to do any kind of legal enforcement. Even if I know that this transaction is child sex trafficking, I can't do anything about it. Sorry, I've, just, I've got to just take the fact that we need to allow whatever child sex trafficking happens, because if we stop the child sex trafficking, then we would have governments censoring and regulating and the legal system would come back in. That's the nose under the camel's tail. Now, Vlad was not advocating this. Vlad was pointing out that this is actually a problem of the views of people like Nick Zabo. Vlad is actually something of a, a realist on this. And this was sort of his point that the way to escape the conundrum is not to assume that there are these stark black and white choices. And that's basically what I pick up on in the book, and both on Vlad's point and on basically pushing back on Billy's claim. We can create these abstract types in our heads and say, if it's blockchain, then it's like this. And if it's not like this, it's not blockchain. But I don't think that's terribly helpful. Again, we actually start to look at what's going on. Actually, the DAO, yes, it was not just this completely decentralized nirvana, but it also wasn't exactly how this would have played out if it had been a bank that someone stole money from. Because there was a hard fork, and the hard fork meant that people had to decide which chain they wanted to be on. You had a group of people who said, no, we don't agree. We're going to create Ethereum Classic on the other chain. And then there was this kind of market competition between them and so forth. So there is something new. I think Billy is absolutely right that it's not one or the other, and there's a tension. But there, I think there is something new and really important here. And that the same thing with Vlad's point about the law, all of what I've been talking about. There are some really new, important, valuable, innovative things here. And we only see them once we get beyond the, these kind of simplistic notions that it's either or. Now, we went through this whole conversation without really even talking about permission chains, and I probably spend a lot of my time on that in, in my class. And so we didn't talk about Ripple, we didn't talk about Corda, we didn't talk about Hyperledger. You end the book with uh, kind of Mike Hearn's journey and how he, it's almost like he was the individual manifestation of the, you know, what do you call it, the hype cycle, right? And I, I don't know, I don't know where he is right now, but could you just recount how his story and how he went through this educational process and how he wound up working in, in the permission chain space? Yeah. So Mike Kern was an early Bitcoin developer. He, I think, was at Google, as I recall, and you know, was a very outstanding engineer and got really excited about the potential of this technology and was actually really a visionary. So he gave this famous speech in it was like 2013 or something about the potential of basically a, a decentralized network of autonomous vehicles that would be controlled by what we now call a DAO and all the economics would imagine. It was this mind-blowingly brilliant, still is, mind-blowingly brilliant vision of here's the potential of this technology. You want to talk about transforming the world, this is going to transform the world. And back then it was even more incredibly prescient. So he was a real advocate of this decentralization. He got involved in the core development of Bitcoin. But then he started to see all these fights. So in particular, this scaling debate where it became clear that Bitcoin had a very sharp limit on the number of transactions and to be actually useful for payments or for most other things other than trading the Bitcoin itself. It was way, way too slow and, and way, way too costly. And he had this concentration of mining, all these problems. And so Mike was one of the group that said, we can 
address this. Here are some solutions to improve the protocol. And other developers said, no, that would involve breaking Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin. It's what Satoshi came up with. We can't do that. And there was these back and forth fight, knockdown, drag out fights, and eventually nothing happened. Basically, they couldn't agree to update the protocol. And so he got disgusted by that and, and disgusted by, again, some of the extremism and the fraud and so forth that he saw in the world. And so he wound up becoming the lead developer for something called Corda, which was created by R3. It was originally a consortium of banks, which is a permission, what's called DLT, distributed ledger technology platform, uses some of the basic cryptographic primitives of blockchain, the same kind of distributed ledger approach of blockchain, but does it in a way where only authorized users can get on the network. And so it's distributed, it's decentralized, but it, it's not the sort of completely permissionless public network like Bitcoin. And this became this kind of alternate camp to the public chains. And again, I, I see this as another one of these false dichotomies that people say, the people on the one side, the sort of public network side say, none of that stuff is blockchain. First of all, that's like intranets. It's just a, a temporary thing. It's not going to work because there's centralized control. Eventually, it's just going to get outcompeted by the decentralized networks. And then on the other side, you have people in the enterprise world who say, this, this Bitcoin okay, it was really interesting. It was a great toy. But you know what? It's only going to be used for money laundering and theft and fraud and doesn't scale. And really, if you actually want to see blockchain work in the real world, you need a permission network. Again, I think both of those are too oversimplified. We're seeing lots of elements of convergence already today because there is a fundamental value of the security model of Bitcoin, which is that the more participation in the network, the more secure it gets. So as it scales, it actually gets better at security. That's a really amazing thing. You don't get that unless you have a really decentralized network. On the other hand, there's big limitations. And again, if you want to do something that really involves large scale transaction processing, which is true even if you're doing an application as opposed to a purely financial system, it's just not going to work. And you have this problem of no recourse when things go wrong and so forth. So we're seeing hybrids is really what you're saying. And so I, Mike Hearn's journey was an example. And then when he went to Corda, you had all these people saying, oh, that Mike Hearn guy, he didn't know what he was talking about. He doesn't know, you know, can't, he doesn't appreciate the potential of this technology. And I said, what do you mean? He understood the potential better than anyone. And so again, this comes back to this central point that I keep trying to make, that this is about accomplishing things. This is about using technology to solve problems and to change the world. And we can start with, again, what's our perfect ideological model on either side? Or we can start with, let's look at what's out there and see what it does well and what it does poorly and how to fix it and make it better. That's actually what excites me still about this space. And there have been obviously these ups and downs of the market. The times, frankly, when there was actually the, the worst activity in the market were the times where I was most excited because, yeah, some people went home. Some people said, OK, if I'm not going to have this incredible bubble, I, you know, I'm not interested. But a lot of people didn't. And a lot of big companies did. And a lot of some of those brilliant engineers in the world could work on anything could make a lot of money at Google or Facebook. They're out there hacking these cutting edge you know, blockchain systems because it's pushing the envelope. This is frontier computer science and this is frontier economics we're talking about here in ways that really could be great for society and also in ways that the biggest companies in the world are investing in because they see problems. You cannot solve supply chain problems across the world where you've got hundreds of actors that have power and money and are in different jurisdictions. You cannot have visibility uniformly across that supply chain without decentralization because the only alternative is to put someone in charge and no one wants to put someone in charge. So we got to get there. And the people that excite me and the developments that excite me are about saying that and then saying, all right, now let's roll up our sleeves. Let's look at how we do that. And some of how we do that is deeply technical. But somehow we do that's about law. <laughs> somehow how we do that is about struggling with these questions of governance. And they're hard and they're messy and they're slippery. But hey, I'm a lawyer, so I think they're fun and I think they're important. Well, Kevin, I think we could talk for a lot longer. And it was great to talk to you again. And uh, hopefully I'll speak to you again soon. But this book, really great job of kind of talking about the key issues, right, which span not just technology and business, but also law. Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. Kevin Werbach, great speaking to you. Talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Greg. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.